This is a Federal News Network podcast. Both the armed services and contractors are trying to speed design and prototyping of new platforms and weapons using digital techniques. They're taking traditional computer-aided design and updating it with artificial intelligence and machine learning, giving development a sort of autonomy it's never had, and building more sophisticated virtual environments in which to test new platforms. For one view of how industry is doing this, we turn to the president of Raytheon Missiles and Defense, Wes Kramer. Mr. Kramer, good to have you on. Tom, it's great to be here with you this morning. And we should point out that as a one-time user and consumer of these types of weapons, this is something I understand is close to your heart, this whole idea. Yeah, absolutely. I served in the Air Force for 11 years and was a weapons systems officer on the uh, F-111 and the F-15E. So I feel like, you know, I do have some experience in this. And now to be at the helm of one of the large defense partners for the Pentagon, you know, it's a real pleasure to be able to still serve in this capacity and to be able to support our men and women in uniform. Now, CAD uh, has been around for a long time. I remember in the 80s, Apollo workstations and looking at people doing wire diagrams. And artificial intelligence is not brand new in this context. So what is changing here? What is the new development? What's the essential change that's new here? Yeah, obviously, Tom, the, the buzzword is digital design or digital thread. And the part that's really different is the emphasis is now on the full product development life cycle. So it's not just doing a mechanical CAD design. It's not just the engineering piece. It's connecting all of that together so that you design something in engineering. It flows seamlessly to your supply base. It flows into operations and being able to literally, like we talk about, 3D print something. And it carries all the way through the sustainment model of how you operate, how you maintain, and how you sustain. So that's really what we're trying to do with Digital Thread is connect that entire product development life cycle. Because the sustainment part of the average thing that flies or rolls over the ground or sails at sea, the sustainment is a much greater cost in the life cycle than the acquisition cost, isn't it? Absolutely. In many cases, that is the largest part of the cost of a weapon system is that sustainment cost. It's not the original procurement. And so that's why it becomes really important to understand that. And we also talk about integrating that into the cost models and being able to represent the entire thing in a digital environment. And as you said, many of the pieces of this have been around for a long time. And clearly, artificial intelligence, machine learning are not totally new concepts. But putting all of that together to really speed the process by which we do that is what we're really trying to do. And again, for somebody like Raytheon Technologies, we've been working on this for many years. But I would say, you know, this year, 2021, really all of those pieces are taking off. And we're seeing just an incredible acceleration with the tool set and all the things. And it really is speeding our designs. So it sounds like one of the essential challenges then is designing a testing virtual environment that you can have confidence would give you the same output as if you were able to test a thing in a real environment. Yeah, Tom, absolutely. And I think that it's not actually that test environment that's the hardest part of this. And and let me talk just a little bit. You know, we are very good at, for example, one of the programs we have today, we're every single night we're flying six million miles in essentially a virtual simulator. So you think of like a Microsoft flight kind of thing, only doing this totally 
um, autonomously. You're flying this weapon in a very representative threat environment, and you're seeing, hey, did the changes I made to the signature, or the changes I made to, you know, different parameters, or the sensor I put in, you know, does that make it better than it was last night on the six million miles that it flew? So that part, I think, is well understood, and we've had good advances in that. The challenge that I think industry is still facing is when you get into the lower level components. So I can take a mechanical structure, I can design that in CAD and 3D, and I can go print that. But when I get down to things like a circuit card, um, you know, even again, the tools are better for designing a circuit card. But when I have a digital stack of six or eight circuit cards, understanding all of those little electrical interactions, second and third order effects, coupling, things like that, I'm still to the point of where I have to build hardware and test that. And so that's what we're trying to get to is can I actually build the entire weapon system in a virtual environment and then go straight to print? And we're not quite there yet. We're speaking with Wes Kramer. He is president of Raytheon Missiles and Defense. And we should put some realism on this. You are trying these technologies on a new air-launched cruise missile. And let me ask you this. When you say you test it by flying it 6 million miles every night, how in a virtual environment can you simulate the wind pressure, the thermal dynamics and back and forth and all the other things it might face in flying millions of miles? Yeah, that's actually the easy part. You know, we have very sophisticated models that not only replicate the environment that it flies in, uh, the physical environment, like you said, of air pressures and clouds or storms or weather, uh, but also the threat environment that it flies in. So those things are actually well understood. And part of it is you're really flying a representation and you understand the capabilities of the system, you understand the physical environment, and now you're looking at you know, different you know, modifications to your platform or to your weapon system on that. So again, that's very well understood. The challenge was what I was talking about earlier, is when you decompose that down into the individual components and you start to understand you know, what are the individual interactions on something at a component level is where we're still advancing the technology to get to that point where you literally can go, you know, a first pass success. I can design something totally in the digital environment and know that it will operate in the physical environment exactly as I had predicted. In other words, the pieces inside that are inside the skin they're not directly in the environment that it's flying through, but they're indirectly by being inside of it. Correct. Something like what we would call a mixed signal ASIC. So, you know, an ASIC is an application-specific integrated circuit, a little piece of silicon chip that does a specific kind of thing. Well, you know, clearly we understand how to do one of those digitally, but in many cases we have things that run both analog and digital signals on the same little chip. Understanding those interactions in a virtual environment is still, the models still aren't perfect in that. And so we end up, you know, we have a simulation, we have a model, we design the circuit, we go send it out to a fab and we have some of those chips built. We come back and measure those and they're close, but they're not always perfect. And when you take a stack up of, say, a dozen of those and you look at those little interactions or those little you know, margins or um, tolerances that you get 
the variance between those, that's part where we're still working to improve our models and get to this ultimate thing that we want to do, which is to literally be able to pull a digital thread and go all the way from concept to fielding something. And therefore, one of the challenges then is the acquisition of the correct data that you can use to train the overall model. Absolutely. That's one of the pieces of being able to have all of those tools. And, you know, we call them, uh, you know, essentially virtual environments or emulators. For example, one of the areas is field programmable gate arrays, FPGAs, which are essentially a reprogrammable chip that takes the place of an ASIC. And the technology in that in the last just four or five years, the emulators and the ability to emulate those in an environment has come along tremendously, but they're still not perfect. You still end up actually having to program one to see how it's going to operate, especially if you're operating a lot of them and it's in a very dense electronic environment. And can this concept work with, say, a notch down from a completed system like a missile to, say, an engine? Because I know one of your sister companies, Pratt & Whitney, they make jet engines, and those are a long time in development and testing, and sometimes 15 years after they've been in service, they discover things, whoops, you know, we missed that, or this particular metallurgy isn't quite right, and so on. Yeah, and, and even in hypersonic weapons, you know, in Raytheon Technologies, we're developing a scramjet engine, which, you know, is essentially a jet engine that has no moving parts that operates at, you know, supersonic or hypersonic speeds. And that is totally 3D printed, the engine that we do for that. It used to be hundreds of parts, and now it's literally a handful of parts. And you can print complex curvatures and things that are impossible to machine. And so there's incredible advances that are happening here in the additive manufacturing area when you tie that together with digital design. And adding this all up, we see a DOD that is sort of littered with programs that are late and overdue. There are some flying platforms made by other companies that have been 10, 15, 20 years in development, and they're still not really fully baked. Do you envision these types of digital design, this end-to-end lifecycle digital design, ultimately being able to get around that issue so that you can have an idea and field it maybe in five years instead of 25 years? Absolutely, Tom. I think that is really one of the great hopes that are out there for the digital thread or digital design. And and one of the things is, you know, it's not just the speed on the battlefield, it's the speed to the battlefield. And that's one of the biggest drivers for digital design is to be able to field weapon systems faster, to understand in a digital environment exactly how they'll perform so that you can limit the testing and not have to take as much time to test. And then, as you point out, to then be able to iterate faster to make updates, uh, modifications, or improvements to that. And there's some urgency to this in the national sense, isn't there? Because when you're dealing with software systems to drive physical systems, then the competitive advantage over, say, China is not all that great. Absolutely. The cycles of learning and the technology cycles have become so compressed that if you were a technology iteration ahead, that might translate to several years or or even a decade. And now that translates to weeks or maybe only months. And so clearly, we have to go faster. And this is one of the driving tools that we're using. And I, I think that, you know, this is a great partnership between government and industry 
you know, to be able to make this successful, we also have to change the acquisition process, right? We have to get away from the traditional waterfall concepts, the preliminary design review, the critical design review, the initial fielding, the developmental test, the operational test. I mean, we have to all align on this model or this digital simulation, and there has to be alignment that that is the basis of what we're going to do, not these other types of reviews. So I think that's still part of the process that's catching up is the contracting and the oversight part of this, of how government and industry works together to use digital technologies to field systems faster. That and also keeping requirements reasonable and building a platform that you can get done quickly and then maybe adding capabilities down the line. Yeah, and that's where I think, Tom, there's an actual advantage. You know, one of the things that we always had in challenges in the past is striving to meet a requirement. And oftentimes there would be a lot of energy spent on trying to get that last 1% of capability or something. One of the advantages of digital simulations and the ability to apply artificial intelligence to it is, you know, I call it dollarizing DBs. You can actually understand, um, you know, what does that last DB of performance actually cost you? And you can have that discussion early on before you're actually building it to say, hey, is this a requirement that we absolutely have to have? Or if we backed off by 2% on this requirement, it might save us 10% either in development time or in production costs. And being able to actually show that, I think, is also one of the improvements that we're seeing with digital design. And finally, we have been using Air Force examples, and people cite the former official Will Roper, who pioneered a lot of this or pushed a lot of this through the Air Force. Are you finding, in your point of view, that all the armed services have this idea? Absolutely. You know, we're seeing that all of the armed services are focused on this. You know, great example, like in the Army, is their OMFB program, the optionally manned fighting vehicle, which is the Bradley replacement. I mean, there you have steady contracts to that, to several uh, industry partners, and it's totally digital environment. There's absolutely, you know, no metal being bent. It's all being modeled in a digital environment. Um, And so we're certainly seeing that, and that's, you know, just one example. But across the services, this is definitely the way of the future. As you said, Dr. Roper is truly a pioneer in this, and, and I think it's been a driving force. And we see huge advantages for this, not only within our company, but again, back to speed and being able to deliver capability to our warfighters and our allies around the world much faster. Wes Kramer is president of Raytheon Missiles and Defense. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. A pleasure to be here. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand and on your device. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series Lessons in Leadership what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great man theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward-looking um, Development of styles, looking at an individual, 
figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over 2 million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired other and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service, which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an, as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group Affinity Insurance World for... Um, three decades uh, led. This is my second uh, major organization that I've led. 
And I will tell you that we impart this feeling. Uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And <clears throat> I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime. And uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.